Welcome to Melbourne Recital Centre's Bookmarks podcast. Bookmarks is a place for lovers of music, literature and conversation to connect online. Recorded live from our first Bookmarks event with author and the Centre's artist and writer-in-residence Anna Goldsworthy and hosted by Jacqueline Krupe. We explore Anna Goldsworthy's novel Melting Moments and more. Happy listening. So to Anna Goldsworthy, an award-winning pianist and writer and a festival director. In 2020, Anna is artist and writer-in-residence at the Melbourne Recital Centre, something we'll talk more about later. She's an accomplished chamber musician and a founding member of Seraphim Trio. She's the author of two memoirs, Welcome to Your New Life and Piano Lessons, and this year published her debut novel, Melting Moments. Anna is also a senior lecturer at the Elder Conservatorium of Music, University of Adelaide, and Kenneth Moore Memorial Scholar at Janet Clark Hall, University of Melbourne. I thought I'd start by talking a bit about this wonderful book. Melting Moments is a book that captures some of the moments, big and small, that make a person. It's a reflection on what a life can amount to. It's an intimate portrait of one woman's life over seven decades, constructed as a series of moments. And we'll talk a bit about the structure in our Q&A. It evokes a period and a place incredibly vividly and brings to life a gently strong woman, bound by her era and her gender. We meet Ruby as a young woman living through the Second World War and we follow her through her life. She's a quietly resilient, dutiful, practical person, always wanting to do the right and proper thing. Anna Goldsworthy shows the ways societal expectations of women shape and define Ruby's life and how the world might just be a bit bigger for the next generation. So, Anna, I've been thinking a lot about the two art forms that you work in and um, before we get stuck into the book, I'd love to talk about the connection between the two. I'm imagining you in front of a piano, in front of a computer, there are keys in front of you. You're creating something for an audience ultimately, but I wondered if you could tell us a bit about what you find to be the similarities and differences between being a writer and being a musician. Yes, thanks, Jacqueline, and thanks for that lovely introduction. It's a very, very good question, and I suppose it's something I think about a lot. In a a lot of ways, I think the processes are quite similar, despite the fact that, you know, my work on the piano is as an interpretative musician, and I suppose my work as a writer is creative. Mm the things that you're sort of thinking about, the decisions that you need to make on a daily basis are not actually all that dissimilar. And that, I think, pertains to sort of large issues of, of structure, of how, you know, both of these art forms are temporal art forms, they unform, they unfold in time. So you're thinking about the overall kind of contour and you've got to keep one eye on that and then you've got to keep another eye on the sentence level or the phrase level. And that level is a level that I sort of find fascinating in, in the way they sort of resonate with each other. I think a lot of the concerns of music, concerns of modulation, of rhythm, of cadence, of, of all of these things, really, you kind of enact them on the page, even if it's unconscious. And likewise, I think, and I say this a lot in my piano teaching, a lot of the things we think about as writers when we're manipulating prose or, you know, as speakers, things to do with the art of rhetoric, but also things to do with punctuation with exclamation marks, you know, with, with commas, with question marks, with the quality of silences and suspense. These are things I think that we need to consider when we're at our instruments. So to me, there's a lot of commonalities. And I've always felt that 
I probably write with my ears as much as with anything else. You know, you've, you've, got, a, you've got a sentence. Martin Amos talks about this actually a bit. Like when the process of editing, which is quite a joyful process, often when you've got stuff on the on the page, mm. and then you go through and refine it and you try to just make the music work and you try to make the flow work. And it's not an entirely rational process. You know, you couldn't say why you made that sentence have a, a few extra syllables and you took a few away from that one necessarily, except that it sounds right. And Martin Amos likens it to a piano tuner, you know, tuning, tuning the keys of the piano until the beats stop, until it becomes sort of frictionless and, and it's in tune. And to me, that's very much the process, certainly at the end of the writing process, of, of refining the words on the page. That is all so fascinating. And I often find I know a lot more about books than I do music, but so many books have a real musicality to them and that's rhythm and cadence and all the things you talked about. Do you think you have a more developed ear because of your music training? Oh, look, I don't know. I'd be hesitant to make any such outlandish claims <laughs> on, the, on behalf of myself. But, I mean, it's a funny thing, isn't it, when we read, like, and the way we experience something that we're reading on the page, it's partly visual. You know, mm-hmm. part of it's to do with the way the words are configured, but there's certainly another part that is that is oral. And it kind of operates somewhere in between those two senses, I, I think. I always find it very useful after I've written something to try reading it and see if it actually works as a, as a, as a read aloud piece. And again, that can be incredibly revealing and it can just show you, you know, the brambles or the, or the forms or the places where the sentence just sort of catches and doesn't kind of take you where, where you want it to go. And I suppose, you know, maybe not every, that's not necessarily everybody's aesthetic, but I suppose often I'm seeking something almost as seamless as, you know, a thought that can be directly conveyed from one brain to another. And I don't necessarily want it to get sort of congested at the level of polysyllables or, or whatever. I mean, I'm not averse to using a big word if I need to, but I always, I like something that has a kind of direct transmission, I guess. And I think music helps with the direct transmission. It helps the sort of seamless delivery of of the content. Yeah, absolutely. Well, something I've learned about myself this lockdown is just how terrifyingly deep my need for words and for music is. I wondered if your need for or relationship with words and or music has changed at all this year. Yes, you know, it's a great question and I feel somewhat fraudulent answering it from Adelaide where I'm not stuck in the hideous lockdown that most of you are, most, most of the people in this book club are. However, you know, we, we had our own flirtation with lockdown earlier in this year and um, there's certainly still a sense that the wolves are at the door and that kind of existential hum, that apocalyptic sort of hum, we're all experiencing that. So, yes, no, absolutely. I mean, the first thing I felt earlier on this year was music makes a lot of sense to me now more than ever. Uh, when things get a bit existential, when the stakes suddenly seem very, very high, music and its capacity to bring us consolation, its capacity to engender a feeling of community, even when we're not in the same space. There are some very desperate moments I remember when I was in lockdown. You know, I have a friend in Melbourne who's a frontline medical worker, and I sat down a couple of times and just recorded for her a Schubert Momot Musico on my phone and sent it to her. And... It was something I did for myself, probably just as much as I did for her. And it was about connectivity, but it was also about remembering what music's about. And again, it's about connection. It's about that more than it's about stage lights and grandiosity and people applauding. If anything, I think it's a bit of an awakening, things like these crises. They make us go back to first principles and and think about what the point is. And, you know, likewise books in, in all sorts of ways, the escapist capabilities of books that you know the portals they offer us to a place that's not necessarily in the middle of a pandemic 
although I know a lot of people have been enjoying pandemic writing, you know, loving the time of cholera and so on. I think there's something for me that's been quite reassuring about books this year when I felt often that the world is just teetering on the brink of absolute irrationality and kind of collective stupidity at certain moments, not necessarily pandemic-inspired, but certainly, you know, Trump-inspired and the possible demise of democracy there, there's something really deeply reassuring about picking up a book and remembering that human beings can be intelligent and wise and poetic and compassionate and humane and kind and, you know, all of these things. And for me, that's been a really necessary antidote to the kind of madness that's, that has at times felt like it's crowding in from everywhere. Absolutely. Something you mentioned then was the audience and in Piano Lessons you write incredibly vividly about that extra voltage that you get from the audience that it gives your playing, something I imagine you're missing at the moment or perhaps experiencing in different platforms. But I wondered what does your book audience, of us readers, what do we provide? Well, yes, it's, it's another great question. It's something I've been thinking about a lot and certainly I think I have been grieving that relationship with an audience and sometimes more than at other times, but it's made me realise that it's sort of become necessary or I suppose just habitual. It's been a part of my life for a couple of decades. But with books, when I first started writing books, you know, I'd already been a practising musician for some years. I was used to stepping out on stage, performing something and being there at the moment of, I suppose, consummation with the audience, the moment when it landed and, you know, it's not the same as being a stand-up comedian where you get a review after every single line that you say. And I often think that's why stand-up comedians improve so markedly and so quickly just because of the intensity of that feedback loop. But you can tell when you're on the, on the stage as a musician. You can tell when the audience is with you. There is a quality to a kind of collective silence when you can tell. There's a communal experience that you're having. And, and I love that. And when I first started writing books, it was sort of weird, like you'd write a book and it had just vanished into the silence and there was nothing bounced back. There was no echo off the far wall and, you know, disappear into the silence for a while and then eventually it would come out and you'd almost forgotten that you'd written it and then you start getting the, the feedback loop. And I suppose I came to really enjoy writers' festivals, talks and so on, just as a way of having that connection with an audience. And I know not every writer likes that, Mm. And I actually don't think it's a realistic expectation that every writer should be a performer, which is sort of the expectation that we have these days that, you know, wasn't always there, the kind of personality cult that goes with um, making a book these days. But, you know, because I am a performer, you know, I guess that means I'm probably already a bit of a show-off and I don't mind being on stage. I actually quite like it. I like my audience. I love uh, the conversations that, you know, come out of a book. And one of the really peculiar things about launching a book in a pandemic was that it was this sort of double silence. It was a silence squared. Mm. And, you know, in some ways it's been liberating. I haven't been running around the country kind of, you know, performing my book for the last six months as I, as I did with my previous books. But as a consequence, I haven't actually developed any real shtick about it. I don't have any kind of script that's evolved in the way I think about my book or the way I talk about my book. And I noticed just before the book club started today, I, was, I had a few butterflies in my stomach and I thought, what's, what's this about? And I realised it's because I just haven't been, you know, talking to groups of people and uh, I, I always did. And, you know, for six months I hardly have and I felt a little bit of stage fright. I said to my kids in the other room, I said, I'm feeling a little bit, 
little bit funny about this, but, you know, it's, it's fine now. The, the professionalism kicks in. Yeah. I just want to say to Frances Green, who hasn't been able to read much during lockdown, and I do completely understand that reaction as well. I think, you know, perhaps people are responding more to music than to, to reading, but I can, I can completely understand that impulse of where you just can't get out of your own head to concentrate on a book. So I just don't want you to feel alone, Francis. I know that the poll was quite skewed there. And could I just ask you briefly about this year, your artist and writer in residence at the Melbourne Recital Centre who are putting on this event for us. And I just wondered what that's been like given that the in-residence part isn't happening. Yes, well, it's a bit tricky. <laughs> <laughs> so I was so excited about being the artist and writer in residence and, you know, cooked up all these plans that I was really pumped about, I think partly because... I suppose they brought together those two aspects of of what I do that we were speaking about at the beginning and I was kind of interested in seeing how I could develop these projects that married sort of literary ideas with with musical realisations. And, well, you know, what the course of this year has been like, there's just been this sort of jettisoning of everything that's lined up, all the plans just gradually going, Mm -hmm. and I was sort of holding up hope that I'd still be able to do a concert, I think, in about November, but everything's sort of fallen by the wayside now. And... Yeah, that's been sad. I mean, I love Melbourne. You know, I don't think I've been for six months without going to Melbourne and Melbourne's been a big part of my life. I lived in Melbourne for years. I'm such a sort of frequent visitor back to Melbourne that I still feel I do partly live in Melbourne, but obviously haven't been there lately. I love the Melbourne Recital Centre. I love the notion of making it my home away from home. It's difficult to be an artist in residence when you can't get into the state to actually enact that residency. Probably was a mean question, I'm sorry, but I just did want to get a sense of your role and what's happening this year. But hopefully you get another chance and you know, yes, we, we'll yes. get through this. And so the next poll question is about to come up and it's the classic question that starts all book clubs and that is, have you read the book? Are you currently reading it? Have you finished it? So it's a yes, no, I'm still reading it question and there it is. So we're moving on to this wonderful, wonderful book, Anna. Um, In the early chapters, they're so full of very specific and wonderful period detail. And I wondered if you could tell us a bit about your research so that you could include those details. And I'm thinking specifically things about food and clothing. Well, I guess the process of research began mostly with conversations I had with my late grandmother. And she was a great raconteur. And I kind of only realised that after she'd gone. But so many of her stories were so vivid in my mind and she, she told so many great anecdotes. And, you know, there are stories about dancing at the Palais and she was also, she was very, very stylish and she kept a lot of her outfits. So I kind of had a sense of that already. So you had access to her dresses and things? Some of them. I mean, not all of them, but, you know, some of them and certainly photographic evidence of the way she used to step out. <laughs> and she was also a terrific baker and there were these sort of, dishes or these um so you know we'd go for afternoon teas and we'd eat the melting moments and we'd eat the sponges and so in a way I feel that was kind of in my DNA but that wasn't enough of a source I you know I'd speak to her a lot I spoke to my like grandfather a lot spoke to her partner later in life spoke to my other grandparents who are still with me I've always loved I think talking to members of older generations so a lot of it was just kind of conversational but Then when I realised I was going to be writing a book, I I took it a bit further. I started digging out, going through archives, looking for newspaper articles in Trove, finding reports of what was going on in the dance halls of Adelaide, you know, say in the 40s. And I loved that. I found it really rich. I mean, it's not that long ago, and yet it's a vanished world. Mm. And walking down these streets and trying to sort of reenact in my imagination what they were like previously 
I, I really adored that aspect of the research. And I think that shows because you've really brought it to life in the book. We're getting lots of lovely comments from people who are saying they've adored the book, they read it in a day, loved the book. Can we have the poll results just so we know? Okay, that's pretty good. Lots of our audience have, have already read it and some are making their way through it. Very good. I just want to go to the book's structure for a moment. You use these wonderful, gentle time slips between the moments that anchor the book and you're very good at very quickly resituating the reader to where they are in Ruby's life and you make it look effortless and I know that it's not. I wondered, was that always the structure to have these set pieces and then to propel time forward gently with these gaps? In a way, I always wanted to sort of stitch it together out of moments. I wanted to see if I could make a book almost as a mosaic rather than as a sort of traditional narrative, very plot-driven, you know, that whole kind of um, curve, that kind of arc. I just wanted to see if it would work. When I first wrote it, I actually sort of composed a whole lot of stories and each of the stories had a lot of flashbacks. And I really liked the stories and they're kind of thematic and I thought they worked well, I liked the flashbacks. But then when I put them all together, just because something works as a story doesn't mean it will actually sort of coalesce with the neighbouring stories and in a way it felt too dense and, and too confusing and I was kind of slightly heartbroken when my editor felt the same. And, you know, he said to me, what about if you just sort of throw it all on the ground, smash it up and just see what happens if you reassemble it chronologically. So I destroyed all the craft that went into those stories. That was painful. But <laughs> then I tried to sort of reverse engineer it and I kind of put them together and I could see where the ellipsis worked and I could see where it didn't. We needed something else. And in a way, what I used as a sort of partial inspiration was that Richard Linklater film Boyhood. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's got Patricia Arquette in it. And it's not the same, but I just, I've always found it really, really, a really moving film. It's about the passage of time. And to me, there's something so profound about the passage of time. It just gets me. It's the reason I love Proust is because it's about time and, and the movement of time. But in Boyhood, they cut, you know, it starts with a boy, I can't remember, it's probably about six. Yes, and yeah. they, he uses the same boy actor and films it over, literally films it over 12 years. So you see this boy grow and it finishes when he's 18. And all the actors grow and they age. But the way he tells the story again, it's just through kind of vignettes and they're really significant gaps. But it's the way we, you know, it's the way we make sense of our dreams. It's the way we make sense of our experience. It's the way we make sense of the visual field as we impose the connections. And I guess I was interested to see if I let the reader do the work, how how much of that, how many of those connections they, they could forge and how much could be left out without mm. it becoming, I suppose, denuded. Yeah, I did wonder if you had written in the gaps and then you deleted them or if you just let them be ellipses. Just, I always find structure so fascinating. Just I'm a structure nerd. I <laughs> you, well, we're going to move on to some themes and topics, I'm afraid. This is a book very much about societal expectations, options and expectations for women. Why did you want to write fiction that explored gender and gender inequality? Why fiction? I've always loved fiction. I'm a great fiction reader. I've written a couple of memoirs. That felt like enough. I you know, don't want to become like a memoirist. That's just a horribly self-absorbed thing to be, you know, like churning out volume seven of my reminiscences. I guess I just wanted to see if I, if I could. And I kind of love writing fiction. I mean, obviously it gives you more freedom. What I think I loved about it in a way, and this may be true of memoir too, I guess, but I mean, there are lots of differences between this and my memoirs. A significant one was I wasn't writing in, in first person, I was writing in third person. But I sort of, allow, I love the way 
I felt I didn't have to state a position. I didn't need to take a stand. And I guess actually this differentiates it not so much from memoir but from the sort of a kind of linear essay-type writing I might do for, for the monthly or whatever in which, you know, you, you feel like you need to actually have a position. You need to be saying something. I but, did actually read this in conjunction with your quarterly essay and I do feel that they're in conversation with each that's other. Interesting. Right, okay. Yeah, yeah. I guess, I mean, they are actually. Uh, the quarterly essay is clearly more modern, more contemporary. And this, in a way, I feel ended up being partly an archaeological dig into my own feminism because, you know, my mum was a rabid feminist and it was never an option for me to be anything else. Although I kind of tried when I was, little, when I was a kid, I tried to be a little bit, a bit unreconstructed. <laughs> and I loved Enid Blyton because I just sort of wanted traditional gender roles in my family and I found that intensely reassuring. And she was studying to be a doctor and that just seemed wrong and I told, didn't tell anybody she was. I said she was a nurse because I was embarrassed that she was a doctor. This is when I was five. And, you know, I only wanted to wear dresses and, and she was just a bloke basically. But I was sort of interested where she came from because my grandmother was not that. My grandmother was very strong, but I'd spo- I suppose much more sort of conventionally feminine in, in many ways. And I was just kind of interested. I hadn't really thought about it all that much. And one of the things I found, I guess I discovered through the writing of it is, well, I, or at least I maybe got a little bit more um, insight into it, is what it must have been like to be a woman of that generation, of Ruby's generation. And you have this child and the child grows up and suddenly says, no, none of your rules pertain. I'm not ticking those boxes. Everything that you valued and thought was the way to live as a woman, I repudiate it. And, you know, I'd seen what that generation of woman was like from from my perspective as, as the daughter of one, but I'd never really fully processed what it would be like to be the mother of one and feel the world just sort of disappearing and, and to what extent can you keep up with it? And I think it's kind of beautiful to watch the way Eva's parents, Ruby and her husband Arthur, do seek to accommodate her and do seek to change their own thinking in a way to, to reconcile themselves with this brave new world. Oh, you've touched on so many things I want to talk about next. I couldn't have set that up more perfectly myself. This is just a minor point, but your portrayal of Ruby managing Arthur, you know, when she wants to buy a particular house and she, the way she wants to renovate it, just seemed quite revealing to me. And I wondered if you could tell us how you came to Ruby and Arthur's relationship. Well, I guess shameless modelling it on my grandparents. <laughs> And the way my grandfather was sort of, at least that, my maternal grandparents, my, my paternal grandparents have, have, a very, have a very different dynamic, but my maternal grandparents, while my grandfather was sort of putatively the head of the household and, you know, all the gestures were made towards his, his sort of male authority, I think there was a real sense that the strength of the household and the true decisions were made elsewhere, mm-hmm. but they, we just had to, everyone just had to sort of pretend they, they went through that, that patriarch. And I think Ruby pretty much always gets what she wants. Hmm. But, you know, she just, I, I guess the other thing I thought, I mean, with, there's a scene in which she wants to buy a house and in order to buy the house, you know, she feels she has to, I suppose, tend to Arthur domestically and I think, you know, she massages his feet and so on. And I often think about is it that Women's Weekly article from I think it's the 50s which talks about what you should do when your husband comes home, make sure you put a ribbon in your hair, put the children away somewhere or tell them to sit them down, make sure everybody's neat. The whole notion of it almost being like a stage set, husband comes home from work and you've got to portray domestic tranquility reassurance. I always found that kind of 
Fascinating because nothing like that ever happened in my household growing up. <laughs> I just want to stay on Arthur for a moment. Something I found so interesting about him is how he is happy or at least proud for his daughter to have quite a different life to the one that his wife leads. Mm. And, you know, he's happy for either to be a doctor, to join the armed forces and just have a less conventional life in all ways. There's this wonderful quote that he says, if the world is not big enough for our Eva, it will just have to get bigger which is such a lovely sentiment. But I wondered, why do you think he sees these two women in his life so differently, his wife and his daughter? I think he respects and understands and appreciates Ruby's strength as well. And I suppose he just has to make adjustments. Eva is a particular person and I think it becomes clear that, I mean, it does in in parenting, I mean, I find the same with my young sons, is they dictate the parenting you can't control them, really. You can kind of vaguely steer them, but it's all, it's very responsive. And I think, you know, it's probably, it's a testament to Arthur's character that he's broad-minded enough to adjust, to realise Eva is a very particular type of creature. You know, he could try to force her to become a housewife, but it's pretty obvious that's not going to wash with her. And I I think there was a whole generation of parents who were forced to make accommodations. And, you know, some of them went further than others Mm. and it wasn't always smooth sailing. I mean, there's there's a moment in the book in which Ruby feels she's finally come around to Eva's way of thinking and then Eva gets pregnant and Ruby suddenly feels beached. Like she's now now the one who's who's worried about Eva's career. She's sort of out on a limb and Eva seems to have retracted. Yeah, that's interesting about Ruby is that she's the one who has concerns about Eva's ambition. You know, she tells her to tell people she's interested in dentistry and not medicine because that ambition is too great. You're writing about a time of great societal change, especially for white women in this one generation, and you sort of have mentioned this, but how do you see Eva challenging Ruby and and Ruby's worldview? Kind of in every way, I think, even though at the same time, a lot of her strength and general life competence, I think, probably comes from Ruby. But one thing, I guess a really clear thing, is I think a sort of central premise for Ruby's life and her whole sort of way of being mm-hmm. is predicated upon the need to keep up appearances. And, you know, likewise, what you're just talking about in terms of ambition, I'm not sure that she necessarily faults Eva for being ambitious. She just doesn't want anybody to know. You know, she doesn't want to draw attention to herself. Uh, You don't want to seem to be too big for your boots, even if you secretly do have this raging ambition. And so for Ruby, in a way, and she only shifts from a a little bit towards the end of the book, keeping up appearances is paramount. And, you know, in a way, the great sort of 1950s post-war whitewashing, I, I kind of feel a bit suspicious of it. I think a lot of it was about keeping up appearances, let's pretend everything's okay, restored to the suburbs, that didn't happen. Let's go all Doris Day, women back into the house, put a ribbon in your hair and everything's going to be fine. I, I kind of think maybe in a way that was the moment, was a little bit about that. There was a degree of pretense, I think, and, you know, my mother often talks about the innocence of the 50s and I'm like, well, they were not an innocent decade. Think about what had just happened. They were anything but an innocent decade. But one thing that I think Eva really repudiates in terms of Ruby, is um, that notion of keeping up appearances. She's She doesn't want to conform. She doesn't want to do this just because the neighbours do it. She's very much a free thinker. She's, she's, she's very individual in that sense and she'll make up her own rules and there's a lot of bravado that goes with it. 
But, you know, they respect each other and they love each other and there's something very deep that binds them together, I think, in, in their strength, despite the fact that there's this generational divide between them, which occasionally you can see, you can almost see it like sort of shimmering in the air. It's that sort of wall, this invisible wall, and the way they can't comprehend each other. And I think there's there's one scene in which Ruby says to Eva something like, don't be cross, it'll spoil your complexion or, or, or rage will spoil your, ruin your complexion. And Eva is just bamboozled by this. She's like, well, why would I care about my complexion? But, you know, in, in, in Ruby's worldview, your complexion is something you must tend to. It's all part of it. It's part, part of the production. There's also that similar moment when the divorce comes up and Ruby says, you know, but he provides for you and she just can't quite get past that and, you know, is that all I can hope for, provision? It's such a seminal moment. Now, my next question is both to you, Anna, and also to our audience, and I'm giving you their support because it's a very hard, almost impossible question, I suspect, but it's about that next generation, Eva's daughter. Do you think Amy's generation has seen as much progress for women as Eva's did? And I guess, is that even possible? So if we could launch poll question three, because we do have this tendency to expect things to be better for each generation than the one before, but I don't know if that's possible for Amy. Do you want to know what I think? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I think... The difference between Ruby's generation and Eva's generation is greater than the, the difference between Eva's generation and Amy's generation or between my mother's generation and my generation. I think, you know, there have been some advances, clearly, and I think my life is a, is a hell of a lot easier because of the fights I guess my, my mother had and I've, I've never felt I need to be quite as fierce as, as she did, but I think the glass ceiling still exists. Mm. I think in a way the quarterly essay I wrote that you mentioned that came out in 2013 was called Unfinished Business and it was about the notion that a lot of these things do remain. We, You know, we might think we've, we've done feminism, we've sorted that out, and yet there are various ways that are not always all that visible until, you know, until you, until you graze your head against the glass ceiling and then you realise that it's there. And I think, you know, one of the things about the Me Too movement, I suppose, was exactly that the reminder that that we're not done, that disadvantage persists in all sorts of realms. And, you know, there's a lot, feminism's got a lot of work to do and not just one job to do, it's got a bunch of jobs to do, you know, right across the board in in different societies and different cultures and different contexts. But I actually don't think there's any context in which its work is done, in which it's finished, in which the game is completely even or equal these days. Capturing a character's interiority, and this is very much a book of interiors, um, is no easy task. And I wondered how you got inside Ruby and then got her onto the page. Well, she was a bit of a difficult creature to get inside because I don't think she's particularly introspective. I think she's a doer. She's a woman of action. She's not hugely reflective. And I think towards the end of her life, it became easier. She became more interior. And, you know, the final third of the book, which is about old age and so on, there's a lot of quietness in it. And in a way, that was a section of the book that I was really drawn to in the writing of it. I was sort of maybe because that's the age at which I best knew my grandmother. I was sort of fascinated by that, by what grief looked like, by what a late-life romance felt like and, and looked like. And that aspect of her interiority was when I was quite keen to probe. But... I feel that she came from a generation or maybe it's just a particular type of person 
you don't want to probe too deeply into what you're thinking and feeling. And in a way, again, this is, I suppose, this kind of collective amnesia that we, we touched upon, the kind of post-war collective amnesia, we're going to wipe the slate clean and get on with things. It's the same sort of thinking that informs many returned soldiers who came back post-traumatic, but there weren't opportunities to properly debrief, debrief because feelings were suspect or it's better just, you know, stiff up a lip, let's make a cup of tea and let's get on with it. And in a way, those rhythms also govern the book. If there's the danger of some kind of disclosure, it's kind of swept under the carpet. This actually came up in the book notes that were sent to us all. Um, and that's how when Ruby states a desire or ambition or a wish, she's very quick to squash it herself. And she does it before it can fully form. And I wondered why you thought women were and perhaps still are so quick to dismiss their own desires, you know, before society can even do it for them. Well, desire in women has always been seen as a bit of a dangerous thing. Mm. And, you know, women have been conditioned for generations to tend to the needs of others rather than actually thinking about what they want. I think when I look at the rhythms of the book, a lot of Ruby's, a lot of the moments are kind of moments of almost failed transcendence or a glimpse of transcendence and whether that transcendence is you know, she does a modelling course and, and for a moment she kind of fantasises about a life of being a bit of a catwalk model and then that's quickly snuffled out or whether there's a sort of moment of romantic possibility and she quickly puts that away and keeps it away and hardly ever thinks about it and, you know, probably possibly for the best but, you know, sort of ambushed by it occasionally over the course of her life and these are the, I guess, sacrifices she makes in the interests, the greater interests of duty. You know, duty was a pretty potent word. We don't mm. use it that much these days, even though in a way, you know, it's it's just as pertinent as ever. And I think what's happened in Melbourne now is, is a wonderful indication of the power of collective duty and the capacity for people to act responsibly for the greater good and think about the community. And that word duty, I think, probably is quite important and quite resonant in these times. But it's it's not a word that, you know, sort of trips off the tongue in the way we speak about what motivates us in this highly individualistic age when we're inclined to think about, you know, fulfilment, um, self-actualization, rather than really, you know, placing duty up there as a kind of binding principle of, of our lives. But I think for that generation, it, it very much was. You, you did your duty, you absolved yourself of your duty, and uh, there was a huge amount of pride in that and, and honour in that, and that was a life well lived. Of course, and I guess coming out of the war too, that it's a direct response to that. So going into that later section of the book when Ruby um, is an older woman, your book goes into the territory that Helen Garner has written quite wonderfully about, and that's where the age at which women can become invisible. And, you know, Ruby's quite used to getting attention for her looks. And at one point she describes herself as vanishing from the world. Why did you want to comment on this, this moment when women can become invisible? And then it's to the audience if they could relate to that, if they felt that was an accurate depiction of what can happen. Yeah, I guess, you know, again, you, you mentioned the quarterly essay and I think this is something I was thinking about quite a lot when I was writing this quarterly essay. And the notion that women become invisible, I think the, the kind of commonly held notion is that you become invisible at 46, which alarmingly is the age I am right now, just about <laughs> to vanish. But um, I read this thing, which I loved so much, actually, I, I sort of stole it and used it in the book. And this woman had written into some sort of online message board and said she'd been on a bus and someone had sat on her. Um, that's how invisible she was. And I thought that's so hilarious. <laughs> 
I used it. I shamelessly pilfered that notion and used it. Ruby is on the tram, I think, or on a bus and, and a big hoon gets in and, and sits on her. And I think this probably, I mean, I suppose it depends how important visibility has been to the individual. But if you're a woman like Ruby, for whom I guess the potency of being able to walk into a room and command a certain attention has just become something you've got used to, then invisibility becomes a type of little death. If you hadn't necessarily centred your whole self-worth in the ability to look glamorous when you walked into a room, maybe it's it's less of a painful thing. I, I don't know. Do women become invisible? I guess it depends who's looking. You know, I read a um, study of the different phases of life and there was something about, you know, your so-called prime between the years of 40 and 60. And I kind of loved some of the ideas behind it, which was that this is an age at which you stop being so self-centred, you stop being really interested in your own ascendancy and whatever you're doing, and it's about giving back. And, you know, certainly I suppose my middle age feels about tending to the young, feels like it's about parenting, it's about looking after my students as much as it is trying to carve out a bit of time to do my own artistic pursuits. Mm -hmm. But one of the things it said the, um, the researchers found, to their great surprise, was that people in the age bracket of 40 to 60 continue to find each other quite attractive. Mm -hmm. And apparently the researchers are quite surprised by this. And uh, (laughs) (laughs) Helen Garner has also written about how it actually can be a wonderful thing and the positives of it. Well, I think, you know, Jermaine Greer said similarly, I think years and years ago in in The Change, just the notion of liberating yourself from, I guess, the tyranny of, of the male gaze and not caring about that. And in a way... I mean, I suppose in a way this is also what my quarterly essay was sort of about, was the notion of actually reclaiming your subjectivity. You know, don't just be ornamental. Not that I think we're all in danger of being ornamental necessarily, but there is a large part of popular culture in particular that seems to conspire towards that type of thinking. And, you know, if if I were raising a young woman particularly, I think I'd probably be concerned about a lot of the messages she was hearing. Absolutely. There's a wonderful comment from Kate who says, being an older woman, I found myself and some of my friends noticed we were becoming invisible. I found to avoid this, I step into my power and stand out, which I love that, Kate. Yeah, that's wonderful. Which brought a tear to my eye there. So we're staying in Ruby in older age. At various points in the book, you reflect on the roads not taken for Ruby, the most notable being Bill Clarkson. Mm -hmm. And it occurred to me that life can happen to you if you're not careful or unable to stand up to the societal pressure. Could you imagine a scenario or series of events when Ruby, being the person who she is, might have been able to make different choices for herself? Well, I suppose, yeah, the clear one would be um, would she have run off with Bill Clarkson? And I guess that is a possibility and it has happened and, it, you know, it does happen. Whether she would have been more happy with that, you know, at, later on in the book I think she talks about there was no other path available. Or if there was another path, it was a path that took you through a lot of briars, impecuniousness, um, the, I can't remember exactly what the words are, but, you know, the, the sadness of the sorrow of your children, social condemnation. And social condemnation in particular, I suspect, is a price that Ruby would not have wanted to pay. Mm. Other people would and did and have and do. 
So the poll question came up while you were answering that, and that's about did other readers, did they think about roads not taken in their own life while reading about Ruby? Because I certainly found myself doing that. Obviously, haven't had as long a life as Ruby yet, hopefully. But, you know, there's, there's all these key moments, aren't there, in a life that you can sort of, in retrospect, pinpoint and say, oh, that was a moment and I, I wasn't aware of it in the time, but now I see you know, what a key moment that was. I mean, of course, when you're reading fiction, you can, of course, just be taken completely by it and you cease to exist yourself. As a musician, obviously, you immerse yourself in the world of composers or a composer before performing. And I wondered as a writer, who did you seek out and turn to when you were wanting to write this book? And while you're answering that, we're going to find out what our audience members are reading, what sort of, whether they're reading fiction, nonfiction, memoir. Oh, did I have any particular... Rightly models. You know, I love Alice Munro. Really oh, love Alice Munro. And there are some stories that I go back to all the time. I just think they're definitive. And I love the way her, her style, I mean, I love style. I love high style and I've always been dazzled by the high stylists. But she doesn't call attention to herself in any way on the sentence level. You know, there's not that many sentences that you go, oh, my goodness, that's the most disarming piece of poetry. And yet they carry such freight of truth and she knows so much about the human heart and the way people respond to each other and the way men and women respond to each other and the interior lives of women and the domestic lives of women. And there's something so understated, but for me also just I, I just think she's lethal. Like quite a few of her stories leave me feeling eviscerated. I think she's amazing. So she wasn't necessarily a conscious model. She's just someone I always really, really admire. I think, you know, I mentioned Proust before and it sounds pretentious to claim that Proust was a, a model. I was nervous you were going to bring up Proust. <laughs> <laughs> it's, not a, it's not so much a model. It's just I love his book and I love the way he thinks about time. And I suppose in a way the melting moments are not exactly, you know, the Madeleine which evokes memories and so on, and yet probably they are a little bit of a secret personal tribute to Proust. And, you know, Priest is a high stylist and he writes these sentences that go on for pages and they're, they're baroque and they're brilliant and they're wonderful and you feel your brain growing. Mm. And the opposite to Munro in, in many ways, except that I think they both speak about, I guess, you know, real life and nothing much happens. Neither of them are hugely plot-driven writers. They're more interested in just sort of charting tiny atmospheric changes in emotional weather and relationships and that's what I really dig, I think. That's the kind mm. of my little, that's my obsession. Um, so we're going to go to audience questions. I'll start with the ones that were sent ahead of time and then I see we've got some in the Q&A. The category, so most people are reading fiction, which, yeah. Good time for escapism, I reckon. It really is. There's some great fiction out too at the moment. But. So this is from June. She's wondering if you'll ever do piano lessons again or put it online, so the stage adaptation. She loved it. It was one of the most enjoyable theatre experiences she's ever had. That's really lovely. And actually I did it at MRC a few years back and I've had a few people ask me if I'd do it again. I don't know. It's, it's funny that you should mention that because I've just been thinking about it the last couple of days and Maybe because I haven't been in front of an audience for a while, I've been feeling a bit nostalgic about doing that play. But I got to the point because we remounted it, I think we did four different remounts. And every, every two years it seemed to come around and there'd be another tour or be doing it somewhere else. And I just kind of got to the point where I felt more and more ludicrous trying to act as a, as a nine-year-old child. And it was always ludicrous. It was ludicrous when I started doing it in my 30s. But I just started feeling more and more embarrassed also about starring in a play that I'd written about my own life. Like it just seemed like the most um, 
self-promoting activity that was sort of possible. And I kept on doing it because I, the place seemed to work and people were moved by it and I, I really liked that. But I kind of had to overcome this immense aversion to my own self to get up on stage and, and deliver it. But lovely to hear that people really liked it. So maybe I will do it again. Uh, the chats are certainly, there's a lot of people who want you to do it again. So the next question's from Debbie. She'd like to know whether you had the storyline decided before you started writing and then how much preparation you did. And she loves the gentle style that you write in. Oh, thank you. I had a vague idea of the contours of it. I knew where I wanted it to end up. What I sort of left until last, and in a way what I felt I avoided in the writing of it, and I, I don't know why, but it was the sort of middle life. It was it was the part of the book that most, I suppose, resembled the way my life looks now. I was really interested in her early years. I loved the 40s. I loved the glamour of all of that. I really loved digging into old age. I, I just found that really just a beautiful place to be thinking about and love and, and you know, married love after so many decades. And so I sort of knew that's where I wanted it to go. What I didn't know was how I was going to get from one to the other and what was going to happen in middle age. And and that was sort of the bit that I needed to kind of devise, I suppose, a little bit more. There's a lot more people begging you to perform piano lessons again. Jess would love to know what you're reading at the moment, Anna. What am I reading at the moment? Oh, gosh, um, just drawing a blank. Like I, I never read a book. Um, <laughs> it often happens. Do you uh, want me to answer what I'm reading at the moment to give you a moment? <laughs> yeah, give me a moment. Give me a moment. <laughs> Well, I've obviously got Helen Garner on the mind because I just got her, the new edition of her diaries. So ah, the- great. I read, a, I read a yellow notebooks. Actually, where are they? Um, Behind you. I saw it. <laughs> yeah, I read, that in, I read that during lockdown and, gosh, that was really helped me. And I wrote to her and I said, Helen, you've rescued me this weekend. Yeah. Just, I just totally related to that. So I look forward to reading that, that it's new one. fantastic. So, mm-hmm. yeah. But Anna, what are you reading? <laughs> well, I'm just actually reading the quarterly essay, the Catherine Murphy quarterly essay about Scott Morrison. Mm-hmm. I feel like I've read some really good fiction lately and for some reason I can't even remember what it is. How mortifying. Okay. <laughs> oh, you know what I really loved, actually? I, I quite recently read Nam Lee's monograph about David Malouf. Oh, yes. And, gosh, it was brilliant. That whole series is wonderful. They're wonderful. Like, I've got quite a few of them sitting here too. Like, I love this one on Shirley Hazard. That's, that's uh, my favourite, to be honest. Yeah. Michelle de Kretzer on Shirley Hazard is extraordinary. Well, I, I, I love the way she just teased out bits, you know, and it was just, it's so generous to read a writer writing about another writer. And, and there's a new one coming on Beverly Farmer, who I love as well. Great. Josephine Rowe. Okay. Josephine Rowe, yeah. another right. black ink author as well. Yeah. Yeah. No, I've, I've loved that series. Yeah. That's so nice. Yeah. Okay. Nicola would like to know how long it took the book from first words written to publishing. Sorry, I've just seen this Alice W to all panellists says Middlemarch. Middlemarch. Um, that's what I've been reading, actually. I don't know if that's my cousin Alice W. It might be, and maybe she knows I have. Uh, I've got a good guess. <laughs> very good guess. I have been reading Middlemarch and, God, I loved it. It's so amazing. I love it every time I read it, but I just loved it more this time than ever. Sorry, Jacqueline, what was, what was that? I love that. Um, Nicola wants to know how long it took from first words written to publishing. Yeah. Well, you know, I wrote a little sketch, a little story of this book 15 years ago, just one little story. Which one was it? Oh, it was the very opening. It's the opening chapter, the very, very opening. I wrote that 15 years ago. I had a residency in Paris, a musical residency at the Cité des Arts Internationales, but I was using it to do a bit of writing as well. 
And I was writing a selection of just stories about women's lives, just key moments in women's lives. Mm. And at that moment, I kind of had the notion that I might want to construct a book which was sort of like uh, The Seven Ages of Women. And I wanted to do it over multiple generations, key moments, those sort of, you know, we were talking about those key moments. I guess, you know, we now call them sliding doors moments because of that film that kind of, in a way, encapsulated that concept. And I wrote that then. But the rest of the book came much later. The rest of the book just came, I suppose, in the last few years a hard question to answer. And finally, and I know we're running out of time very quickly, you never specify why Arthur was sent back from the war. And at one point it appears he does want to talk about it and he gets shut down. Did you have a reason in your mind but chose not to write it? Uh, in my mind he had an anxiety disorder and that was very shameful. And I think, you know, there is that key moment and it's a kind of tragic moment, I think, because it's an opportunity for a deeper intimacy between Ruby and Arthur. He wants to talk about it. He Finally, he wants to talk about it. He's never wanted to talk about it, but he finally does, but she doesn't want to hear it. She can't afford to hear it because, you know, at one stage she says she wants to preserve the idea of him as the go-ahead young fellow he used to be. She needs him to be strong. She doesn't want to own up to the fact that he might have vulnerabilities and weaknesses. So he's not allowed to express it. And so instead she goes and puts the... Kettle on, because that fixes everything. <laughs> yeah, I love that. I guess, yeah, you have to have answers for these things, don't you, even if you don't reveal them. Okay, so I think I better wrap up. Melbourne Wright Recital Centre would love to hear your feedback on this Bookmarks event, and they'll be sending you an email with a survey, so look out for that in the coming days. They want you to make sure you're signed up to their e-news, which I'm sure we all are. We're signed up to your e-news, we promise. So I'd like to end with some thank yous. I'd like to thank the Melbourne Recital Centre team for putting on this event and offering us connection when we really need it most. I'd love to thank the audience. I've, I haven't quite kept up with the chat as much as I wish I had. There's been some wonderful comments there. I hope we get to look at them later. But I love hosting bookish events and I'm thrilled that you could all be with us tonight. Anna, before I thank you, do you want us to throw open microphones, video, and have everyone raise a glass? Why don't we? Why don't we see who we've been talking to? Who have we been talking to? So, but Anna, lastly, I'd like to thank you for this beautiful book and your thoughtful insights into your creative life. You're so generous with that. And I think all of our audience are joining us to thank you for this wonderful book that you've given us. Thank you, Jack. And thanks for your beautiful line of questioning. I really enjoyed our chat. And thank you to everybody for your comments up the side there. I should mention that my artist in residency is going to continue into 2021. Not yet quite sure what form it will take. Thanks for the suggestions of the piano lessons play. Maybe we need to talk about doing that. <laughs> lovely, lovely chatting. Lovely seeing you all. And uh, I'm thinking of you all in Melbourne. The light's at the end of the tunnel. But I was, I was saying to Jacqueline before we, we went online here, I just, you know, as far as I'm concerned, as far as we're all concerned, Victorians are heroes. You've been absolutely at, at, the, at the battlefront and you've held the enemy at bay. So bravo to all of you. And, uh, yeah, stay, stay as sane as possible and hope to see you in person when we get out of this. Absolutely. We'll see you at the Melbourne Recital Centre, everybody. Thanks for listening to Melbourne Recital Centre's first Bookmarks podcast. We hope you enjoyed listening to Anna and Jacqueline's insightful discussion about characters and themes in Melting Moments, the writing process and musical connection. We'll be back with our next Bookmarks event in the near future. Until then, sign up to Melbourne Recital Centre's e-news to stay in touch. And remember, no matter where you are watching or listening from, we are here together.